Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the Real Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Over the years, Real Sports has reported on a wide range of issues affecting college athletes and the multi-billion dollar NCAA system in which they operate. The questions raised in stories like these have left us to wonder whether the NCAA's controversial but extremely lucrative business model would ever see meaningful change. Now, after many years of wondering, we may finally get some answers because a number of states have passed bills that will soon allow college players to make money beyond their scholarships. Meanwhile, Congress is weighing various legislative proposals to put in place a new federal standard for how college athletics should operate. And as all that's happening, the NCAA is facing numerous lawsuits that say their current system is illegal. And this month, the Supreme Court will be hearing a case dealing with the NCAA for the first time in almost 40 years. How all of this shakes out could change college sports forever. And to talk about it, we're joined today by Senator from New Jersey, Cory Booker. You may not know, but the Senator is a former star football player himself. He played tight end at Stanford. Now in his effort to change the NCAA system, he's introduced the College Athletes Bill of Rights, a bill that proposes sweeping reforms. Senator, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's so good uh, to be with you. I really appreciate you all focusing on, on this issue, which I think is uh, really an urgent one in our country. So how did your own experience at Stanford shape your perspective on the NCAA and how it handles its athletes? Well, first, I just want to say I am who I am because of sport. I, I, football uh, was such a powerful force in my life. Even getting into Stanford, I always say got in because of a 4.0, 1,600 4.0 yards per carry, 1,600 receiving yards uh, uh, that enabled me to get into a great school like that and have a tremendous set of opportunities. So I, I love uh, college football, which is why I feel so driven uh, to address what I think are injustices within it, as well as levels of exploitation of athletes. Remember, this is a $15 billion industry, and it was shameful to see in my career and continuing thereafter uh, young people get in trouble for being in an environment, maybe not coming from a suburban town, but a low income community uh, where they were barely making ends meet in terms of just being able to afford being at school because a scholarship was shy of their needs. Um, they would have a, a jersey with their name on it being sold for more money than one of their parents would make an entire day's work. And they were in really difficult situations. And then uh, I, I watched uh, people, uh, in fact, when I was uh, being recruited by a very well-known coach, I remember that he jumped schools during the time I was being recruited. And I, was, I thought to myself, well, wow, if he had recruited me to that school and then left right away, could I have just transferred? No, because they have restraints on that. 
So I could go through, you know, lots of things that just struck me even when I was playing as an injustice. And this institution called the NCAA that should be for the health, safety, uh, uh, and betterment of young people uh, feeds off of them uh, and, and doesn't do what it should be doing. So I want to see the NCAA put young people first and not just profit over people. And as you know, Senator, their system that is in place has been pretty resilient, right? It's been slow to change. In fact, for pretty much the entirety of our show's history, Real Sports has been reporting on much of this. Correspondent Bernard Goldberg in particular has done a number of stories that explore questionable aspects of the NCAA. On today's episode, Senator Booker and I will discuss these various issues, but we'll also play portions of some of those old Real Sports reports. And you'll hear from people who have challenged the college sports model over the years. People like Ed O'Bannon. He's the former basketball player we first met on Real Sports 10 years ago. O'Bannon had grown frustrated because in his mind, the NCAA was preventing college athletes from profiting off of their own name, their own individual brand. And he decided to do something about it. Take a listen. O'Bannon is a laid-back guy, known around here as Easy Ed. So at first he had to smile when one day in 2009, he saw his friend's kids playing this video game, licensed by the NCAA, featuring a computer version of his 1995 UCLA Bruins. There I was, there my teammates were. And it was initially really cool to see. But your friend says what? He's like, you know, what's crazy is you didn't get paid from this. But someone's getting paid. The business of selling the images of college athletes for video games, DVDs, and more is bigger than you might think. Tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. No, billions. no, yeah, billions. Four billion a year. It's <laughs> a lot of money. <laughs> and how much of that did you get for being on the video game? None whatsoever, zero. And I just thought, look, I'm a grown man. And if you want to use my likeness, you need to ask me. Well, not really. Turns out that before any kid suits up to play college ball, he must sign a legal release which grants the NCAA the rights to his image. O'Bannon says he didn't know what he was doing, that he never had a lawyer or even a parent look at anything. You signed away your rights. Mm -hmm as a 17-year-old kid. It sounds like you're saying that the grown-ups at the NCAA were taking advantage of a bunch of 17- and 18-year-old kids? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Easy Ed O'Bannon lost his patience and turned the whole thing into a federal case, literally. He filed a lawsuit against the NCAA, saying in effect that if they can make money off of him, then he should get paid too. The NCAA tried to have the case thrown out but failed. And now, two dozen other former college athletes have joined O'Bannon's crusade. I get calls all the time from different players um, who are angry, who want to uh, see a change. What do they say to you? Great job. Congratulations. You're doing something that we've always wanted to do. And they are excited that uh, someone is finally speaking up. We're back with Senator Cory Booker. Senator, I have to ask you, did you play those old video games? <laughs> I, I, definitely, I definitely did. Guilty as charged. Uh, 
Uh, and it was unconscionable that you literally could find your number <laughs> and your likeness uh, uh, and you're not getting any uh, anything for it. And not I, the name, not the name, not right? the it name. Was number 15. Number, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, you know, you, you talk to athletes, uh, former athletes now who would sometimes watch their jersey and continue to be sold with their name on it after they had left and they were getting none of that revenue. It's just to me uh, outrageous, outrageous. So let's set the table before we dive in. Last year, the NCAA actually asked Congress to get involved in this matter of what's known as name, image, and likeness. And as we sit here, six states have passed bills, and many other states are considering bills that would allow players to profit this way by doing things like endorsing products, appearing in video games. The NCAA is worried about this wave of state bills, and they seem to want a federal policy in place that'll take precedent and perhaps allow more of their status quo to be preserved, right, Senator? Some opportunity for players to make money, but with a lot of restrictions, which I know you take issue with. So in your mind, can this be dealt with on a state-by-state -state basis, or does Congress have to act? Well, I, I hope it, there is a federal solution, because to have a patchwork of state laws would affect uh, college sports as we know it. In other words, uh, whether you're, you know, Big Ten, you pick your division. If, if one state has a different rules, they might have a recruiting advantage over another state. So there's something to be said by having a federal, as they call it, preemption over this. But, you know, as one senator, but in, in, a, in a Senate that's split 50-50 even, every senator is kind of a, uh, has a lot of power. I'm definitely not going to do everything I can not to let anything pass through unless the NCAA puts, makes real commitments to athlete safety, to athlete well-being. Uh, there are things that they've talked about. I had a hearing with the NCAA, God, six years ago, and you had the head of the NCAA talking about lifetime scholarships. Oh, that's a great idea. Talking about uh, transfer rules uh, and more, but they've done nothing about it. And so this institution, I'm deeply skeptical of their ability to change. And if they were going to come to, the, to us and want what amounts to antitrust exemption, I'm going to make sure that we get everything we can for our college athletes uh, off the table in any legislation on the federal level. Right. And, and that debate over antitrust exemptions is uh, kind of at the at the center of this Supreme Court case. Some of your colleagues seem more open to giving the NCAA that antitrust exemption, which would protect them from lawsuits like the one Ed O'Bannon brought. You're against that. Yeah, I am. I mean, uh, I heard this, the kind of language I'm hearing right now, I heard in the Olympics, right? God, it's going to destroy the Olympics as we know it if we get rid of uh, that so-called amateurism status. And it, it, nobody would argue that uh, it has hurt the Olympics. In fact, it's actually helped Olympic athletes a lot more uh, by allowing them to monetize uh, their efforts. And, and so I think that this is really awful that you have an, an incredible, talented, genius-level human beings who've so mastered their trade and in those peak years, uh, you say you can't earn, you can't share in any of the profit you create. I mean, there's no other business like this in, in, in America. So anti our ideals of a free market. You can't benefit at all. But by the way, the billions of dollars you create, we're going to buy, we're going to create glorious luxury facilities all over the place. We're going to pay people millions and millions of dollars of salary. We're gonna, everybody else is going to get rich, but you just go out there, sweat, bleed bruise, break for the purity of the standards we're really holding to. And there's a lot of aspects of this that just don't sit well with me. 
you mentioned recruiting earlier, and we know how cutthroat college athletics can be. Some have suggested that schools are going to weaponize name, image, and likeness opportunities as recruiting tools. They, as universities, will meddle in these arrangements. You'll have bidding wars with agents involved, boosters involved. You okay with that? Look, I think we need to have reasonable controls to make sure that the boosters and others that we protect against that. And by the way, uh, I remember being recruited. I was a high school All-American on the same USA Today All-American team as Emmett Smith. Uh, I was the most overrated high school football player in the history of the United States of America. And, and let me tell you, in those recruiting wars, the things I witnessed back in those days, so the NCAA has always had to find ways to control for uh, uh, for some of these problems. We can find a way uh, to minimize some of the things that people are worried about. So you know firsthand that it's a, that's a dirty underbelly. That's a dirty world, the world of recruiting. And you're confident that even as you open up the monetary opportunities, it can be regulated. We, we are, we are, you know, we are still seeing recruiting scandals today. We know we are still having problems today. So the, my point is, in fact, I think we can do a better job today. And that, that adding in this new variable into that recruiting equation is something we can control for if we're committed to that. But the first commitment here, which we are violating with NCAA sports right now, has got to be to the well-being of the athlete. And, and that seems to be keep falling aside. What are you trying to protect in your COVID policies? Oh, so students aren't safe enough to go to school, but send the, send the athletes to the field. What are we trying to protect uh, in our educational policies? This is an educational institution, but only 55% of your uh, of your black athletes uh, in, in the revenue generating sports or getting the degree. What are you trying to protect? I can keep going through things that are showing the lie of all of this. Let's get college sports back focused really on the well-being, the safety, the education, the health of college athletes and stop making about what it really seems to be about right now, which is the money. Well, your bill goes further than just opening the door for athletes to make money off of their image and likeness. You also propose that they share in university profits. And back in 2011 on Real Sports, we considered what those dollars and cents might look like if college athletes got the same 57% of revenue that NBA and NFL players were making. Here's Bernard Goldberg discussing just that with former Stanford Athletic Director Ted Leland. Texas football, which made nearly $94 million in revenues in 2009, the last year we have numbers for this, all 85 football players, would have made $630,000. Hmm. In basketball, Duke made $27 million in 2009. They only have 12 players on the team. Each player would have made $1,260,000. If those kids are watching this story, I can imagine what they're thinking right now. Absolutely. These kids have economic value. They do. And we have a system that doesn't allow them to benefit from that. When I was at Stanford and we negotiated a lucrative Nike contract, I had this conversation with one of our basketball players. Wait a minute, the story is I wear the swoosh and the coach makes 300,000. Is that the system we're in, Dr. Leland? And I said, yeah, that's the system you're in. Tyrone Prothrow knew the deal when he signed up. He'd get a full scholarship to school, but that was pretty much it. Do you have any idea about how much money the University of Alabama football program made during the three years you were playing there? No idea. No idea at all? No idea. $125 million. That surprises you? I mean, 
it does because you know that's a you know, that's a lot of money. How much did you get paid? Not a dime. Not a dime. Not even a penny. As we just heard in that story, there are big sums of money that could be shared with players if you invite a, a kind of free market revenue sharing type system. But of the bills in Congress, yours is definitely the most ambitious in that regard. What exactly does your bill propose in terms of players getting a piece of that pie? It's a revenue sharing proposal that says in the sports that generate revenue above the scholarships uh, that you would share with the athletes 50% of that revenue minus the scholarship costs. I believe that the athletes that are playing sports uh, should see a fair revenue share. Um, and I'm not just talking about the marquee athletes. Hell, I, you know, I was a tight end. I, I sat next to these big linemen. They should share in the revenue, the ones that are not necessarily in the glory positions. Um, and I think that a, a revenue sharing uh, is is fair. It's just, let's stop making this, I, I think this lie that other people should get rich off of uh, the people that are, that are in the field or on the court uh, that are doing the work and creating the revenue. Now, some worry that taking this share of profits and giving it to football and basketball players would lead to more non-revenue sports getting cut and maybe take opportunity away from, say, the cross-country athlete or the rower on campus. Do you share that fear? If we had our priorities right, I don't share that fear. In other words, I go to college facilities now that have better luxury facilities than pro teams, for crying out loud. The, the lavishness of what they're spending does it does do we does that mean that maybe you make a tough choice and say the coaching salary does not need to be a million plus? Trust me, the cross country team is not that expensive, and I know uh, from Stanford's my Stanford days that uh, Stanford football pays for a lot of the other sports that are there, which are expensive and difficult. But there are other ways to make sure that those uh, true amateur, true non-revenue generating sports uh, can be carried. What do you say to those that argue that these players, they're already given a scholarship, you want them to be able to sign some autographs or, or make money off of their name, that's fine. But to actually share in revenue like pros would erode the essence of what college sports are supposed to be. If you're here to tell me that um, a scholarship covers the four years, 50 hours a week of work, in which you're working in a way like few others are doing, working in, a, in an industry where you are creating the overwhelming lion's share of the profit and you share none of it. And oh, by the way, that calc class you wanna take as long with, along top of a American history class, along top of an English class, you won't probably won't be able to even like focus that much on that because you're gonna be spending so much time in season that this is just wrong. And if there is a dynamic of race about this, the revenue generating sports, particularly basketball and football, are disproportionately African-Americans. And there is something problematic when you have graduation rates so low amongst African-American male athletes. Uh, when you have many of those athletes, these are their top earning years and they're not able to benefit. There's something just wrong about that as well. Let's turn to another issue plaguing college athletes that you had mentioned that your bill deals with medical costs. As we first covered on Real Sports in a story in 2015, when college players get hurt playing for their schools, they're often the ones left to foot the bill. That's exactly what happened to Darren Harris, the former University of Washington football player who Bernard Goldberg interviewed six years ago. We go for the ball, both got our hands on the ball, full speed, and then, then I go face first into the ground. My face mask, the bar, 
uh, impaled me, came right through when I hit the ground face first, and went right through there, and um, it split my whole upper lip. Like that moment, my life was changed forever. That moment left Darren Harris in a coma and a different person when he woke up. I couldn't sleep, sensitivity to the light. I was just miserable. Everything was difficult, just little things was difficult. Planning my day, you know, getting my clothes ready, just everything. When you returned to school, is it true that you were classified in effect as a disabled person, that you had a learning disability? Couldn't read. <laughs> yeah, it is true. Couldn't read, certainly couldn't play football again, and when he left school, couldn't hold down a job. So to get help, he came here, back to campus to see his old doctor, the one who treated his head injury while he was in school. It seemed like old times, until a few weeks later. You go home, you know, like weeks later you get, you get, you get a bill in the mail. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, oh, they made a mistake the first couple times. So I thought, I just, I just thought because of my injury, I'd be taken care of. So let me make sure I understand this. You got hurt playing football at the University of Washington. Yeah. And then you went back after you left the school to the team doctor mm -hmm. because of the problems you were having as a result of that injury. Right. And, and now I had to pay. Harris learned a hard lesson that day, a lesson many NCAA student athletes have been surprised to learn. Once you're done with college, college is typically done with you. You're not only stuck with the injuries you sustained, you're also stuck with the medical bills. The NCAA says it's always looking out for its student athletes, which is why they consider them student athletes to begin with, to protect them by keeping them as amateurs and not as paid employees who could be exploited by an overly aggressive athletic program. But it turns out that not being an employee is perhaps the very thing that puts student athletes at risk because it deprives them of a benefit that virtually every worker in all 50 United States is guaranteed by law, workers' compensation insurance, which pays for all medical care if they get hurt on the job. You're on your job, you get hurt, and you have medical bills totaling $50,000. Who pays for that? Uh, the workers' comp insurance would pay for 100% of all your medical bills. Co-pays? No co-pays. Deductibles? No deductibles. 100%? 100%. Rick Gleason is an expert on workers' compensation, having inspected workplace safety for federal and state governments for 15 years. Now he teaches public health at the University of Washington, which means he's covered by the school's workers' comp insurance like everyone else working on campus. Okay, we're sitting here in a football stadium at the University of Washington. If a referee falls down and is hurt, is he covered by workman's comp? Absolutely. How about the absolutely. coach? Oh, absolutely. How about the guy who sells peanuts here in the grandstands? Absolutely covered, yes. Okay, so everybody is covered except except the people doing the most work and the highest risk of injury, which is the student-athletes are not covered. And we're back with Senator Cory Booker. Senator, did you experience this at Stanford, seeing teammates suffer injuries that they then had to deal with later in life on their own dime? 
Yeah, I mean, football is a is a, a a brutal sport on on the body. Some people have done so much wear and tear to, by, on their knees. By the time they're in their forties, they're having serious problems and need medical intervention. So, do I know folks that have had to go in, out of pocket or uh, uh, for for expenses related to injuries they incurred by by service to their university and sport and college? Yeah, absolutely. And some of the stories uh, are really sad, are really tragic, as we just heard. Your bill also calls for more robust health and safety standards to be implemented across the board. I'm curious, what will that entail? And where in your mind has the NCAA most missed the mark in this area? I don't know if there's a guy who played football who doesn't know that moment when a, when somebody's taking a headshot, game is on the line, and the right medical thing to do is to sit that athlete down. But that athlete wants to go back in, coach wants them to go back in millions of fans around the country wanted to go back in if that coach actually knows that their job will be on the line if they put somebody out there in danger and, and knowingly endangering their health or that their salary will be on the line if they knowingly endanger an athlete maybe then we'll see some change but i've i've been around long enough to know that a key part of accountability is consequences for failure to meet standards if you don't have that i think you're fooling yourself to say that athlete safety will be put first. I am a guy who watched in my career athletes' well-being put at severe risk for the sake of winning a game, uh, and that's wrong. Your bill also calls for medical trainers to operate separate from athletic departments, which isn't the case now. I take that to mean you think athletic directors, coaches, they're going to abuse that influence over doctors if they're given the opportunity? I'm telling you it is human nature. We have to have medical professionals that can make a call and know that the coach isn't going to fire them the next day for making the wrong call. And we should really be serious, step up as a culture and just say, this is not a gladiator pit. This is about protecting young people. And we're serious and we're so serious about it that if a medical professional is out there, they have the full autonomy and independence to protect a young person. Right. Of course, many raise the question that once you open this can of worms and college players are getting compensated like employees, they're getting medical care like employees, how can they still be students? Mark Emmert and the NCAA have insisted that any changes to their system still preserve the academic mission. But as you're about to hear in this next clip from another Bernard Goldberg report in 2014, the model that's currently in place hasn't always been working. At the University of North Carolina, learning specialist Mary Willingham was baffled by what she was seeing from the athletes arriving at one of America's most prestigious schools. They're coming in with reading levels of fourth, fifth, sixth grade. There's even some who are reading below a fourth grade level. You're saying that some kids were admitted to the University of North Carolina, one of the best public colleges in America? with a fourth grade or even in some cases lower than a fourth grade reading level? That's correct. Makes it pretty hard to go to college, doesn't it? You would think, and for many years, the NCAA had a rule to help ensure incoming athletes could handle college work, requiring them to score a certain level on standardized tests like the SAT or the ACT. But in 2003, that rule was revoked. Colleges could now put athletes on the football field or basketball court no matter how they did on the tests. And soon, the term college education began to take on a whole new meaning. 
I worked with letters and sounds with some basketball players and some football players. Give me a demonstration, letters and sounds. So I start to just show you uh, cards, you know, like a deck of cards, and I hold up C and I say to you, Bernie, what is this letter? And you say... C. And I say, what sounds does the letter C make? And you say... Either ka or sa. And let's move on. But first. the kids in college. One particular player said to me, please teach me to read well enough, Mary, so that I can read about myself online. Teaching phonics to college students may sound absurd, but at UNC and many other big-time sports schools, it was suddenly very important business because the NCAA's new policy that eliminated minimum SAT and ACT scores for athletes came with a catch. Roughly half the athletes on each team would have to graduate or the schools wouldn't be allowed to compete in the postseason and would lose out on millions. That's one of the reasons, Mary Willingham says, big-time athletes at UNC were funneled into custom-made, no-show classes they couldn't possibly fail. They would just have to turn in a paper at the end of the semester. There was no class. When you say no class, you mean no class? No class. They didn't ever go to class? They never went to class. So they never took a test? They never took a test. They wrote a paper? Not really wrote a paper, but <laughs> maybe copy and pasted a paper from a book or from an internet site. This is a bad joke, what you're describing. It was a horrible joke. No learning took place. I was like, hold up, you know, I got a class, I'm getting credited three hours, and I never have to go. That's not all that surprised Mike McAdoo when he arrived at UNC to play football. When I got there, they already had what we were going to major in. But you're not suggesting, Michael, that somebody handed you a piece of paper and said, here are your classes. That's what happened. From the first day I stepped foot on campus, I had a schedule. Class schedule? Class schedule. And you didn't pick those classes? No, sir. The athletic department picked those classes? Yes, sir. Brian Bishop played on the UNC football team, too. And like Mike McAdoo, he says he was told to take courses in one specific major for one specific reason. So somebody in the athletic department said, uh, Brian, you're going to major in African-American studies? Correct. Did they ever say flat out, we want you to study these courses because they're easier? Yes, they did. What do they say? To stay on course of graduation, you would need to take these courses. We spoke to some kids who said they were shuttled into, in many cases, African-American studies. Right. Uh, is that true? That yes, it was a total scam. So to clarify, you aren't proposing that football and basketball players serve effectively as minor league athletes and do away entirely with their academics. You still want them to be students. I think they, I would love for them to be students. It is an enriching part of your experience to, to be a student. And again, this is why I'm so in love with Stanford. I love the fact that when I would go into the, the field house, they would have the GPAs of all of us ranked up there, the top athletes. Like that was something they wanted us to strive for. Um, I think that this is a, this is a good thing but we should do it with an understanding that, that it may take more than four years to finish your degree, and you should have a, a long-term option to be able to come back and get your degree. Well, you also paint somewhat of a rosy picture of that academic mission. I mean, as we just heard about in that story, even at somewhere like UNC Chapel Hill, a great academic oh, institution, yes. there are abuses afoot. So once you open the door to athletes signing endorsement deals, signing with agents, doesn't that dispense with any notion that these are normal students 
and serve to make worse the problems we just heard about? Not if you relieve the pressure uh, for this athlete to, to have to finish their degree uh, on time. In other words, for me, I, I really believe that uh, we should acknowledge what is right, is that we are we, that most athletes are doing full-time jobs and, and make uh, allowances uh, for that reality. Um, I agree with you about the joke uh, uh, that, that we saw in that previous clip and how offensive that is. These kids were being ha- having their education stolen from them by creating that track. And, and my ambition is to stop the steal of people's education when it comes to giving them a real opportunity to get a real education. And so I think that our, our lifetime uh, scholarship actually relieves a lot of that pressure, would help people, especially in season, take a more realistic course load. Well, that's well and good to have athletes come back. But while they're there at school, how will they be academically incentivized under the current system when the focus, like you said, the full-time job is football and basketball, can they actually be students? Well, again, I am you know, a senator in a state that has lots of people who work full-time jobs you know, as uh, uh, office assistants to put themselves through school and are taking a course load. This is not something rare in America. And I think that it is good to have uh, athletes who are also taking classes. I think it benefits them. And, and from the guys I know that have gone pro to uh, people who are graduated with their degree and had the college experience, it is a it, it can be a experience and 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 most often is in which uh, athletes like myself really benefit from doing both. Let me ask it to you this way: Why is it the school's responsibility to educate a football and basketball player? Once they're effectively being treated as employees, they're sharing revenue with them, they're giving them health insurance like they're an employee. Can you really have it both ways and also give them an education at the same time? Sure. And I purposely did not use the the word employee, but I think that all the things you're describing are to me just matters of not employee status necessarily as much as just justice. I'm I'm giving you 50 hours a week. I'm creating revenues of millions of dollars. I should be, my health and safety should be taken care of. I should share in some of that profit. I think that that is a relationship that universities can honor. And I think that it does benefit you, uh, player X, from getting a degree from the great state university of such and such a state. I think this is a, this is a very good thing. And I don't see any conflict in that. Last question for you, Senator. With so many moving parts in the courts, in Congress, what do you envision for college sports a year from now, five years from now? Where are we headed? I think that for the fan of college sports, you won't notice that much of a difference. I think for the for the people that are playing it, it'll be a massive difference. They will suddenly have an NCAA that is honoring them fully, that is about really protecting their health and their well-being. It's about making sure that they get uh, a fair shot in an education, whether it's, it takes them four years or six years. Um, and this multi-billion dollar industry that's being made off of the, their sweat and blood and struggle. Now they're actually getting a fair uh, take, a cut uh, of that uh, of that revenue. So for all of the NCAA's resistance, you are confident that change is coming? Oh, I'm sorry. I This is Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, you know, as a great Frederick Douglass says, if there's no struggle, there's no progress. We got a lot of struggle. 
to, to get this done and there's no certainty in it whatsoever. But I'm hoping uh, that we can find a way through w this moment because if the NCAA does not concede on some of these points, doesn't work with us, uh, then, then, then it's going to tumble into this period where different states are going to have different standards. And that I, I, I don't think is, a, is the ideal thing. Well, Senator Booker, we will surely be watching closely and continue to report on these issues. And thank you again for joining us. No, I'm really, I'm really grateful. And if you want me to send you any of my highlight reels uh, from my days in high school or college, I know you're probably now really curious to, to see them. I'd love to see them. Well, I, I don't know if I want to show them to you because the older I get, the better I was. And uh, my, my mass mediocrity in college uh, doesn't live <laughs> up now to my rhetoric. Well, thanks again for joining us, Senator. And that'll do it for today's Real Sports podcast. We'll be back with a new episode following the premiere of the next Real Sports on March 23rd. And a quick reminder to everyone listening, you can watch all recent episodes of Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel on HBO Max. And if you like the podcast or you have a minute, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you might be listening. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Please join us again next time.